Welcome to Fast Asleep. You may be here for a good night's sleep. Welcome. Or you may be here for an exceptional story, and we have a few of those for you. It's very nice to have you with us. And you may be listening to this podcast at any time during the year, but in real time, we've reached the season when leaves fall, weather changes, and all things a bit dreadful come to mind. So we'll start this season with the work of Algernon Blackwood from Kent, England, go UK. Born in 1869, he was a broadcasting narrator, a journalist, a novelist, a short story writer, and the most prolific ghost story writer in the history of the genre. Now the story you're about to hear is in two parts and everybody loves a haunted house so get ready. Tuck yourself in and savor a detailed tour of the empty house. Certain houses, like certain persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the latter, no particular feature need betray them. They may boast an open countenance and an ingenuous smile, and yet a little of their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being, that they are evil. Willy-nilly, they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and wicked thoughts, which make those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them as from a thing diseased. And perhaps with houses, the same principle is operative. And it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof long after the actual doers have passed away that makes the goose flesh come and the hair rise. Something of the original passion of the evildoer and of the horror felt by his victim enters the heart of the innocent watcher and he becomes suddenly conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and a chilling of the blood. He is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house to bear out the tales of the horror that was said to reign within. It was neither lonely nor unkempt. It stood crowded into a corner of the square and looked exactly like the houses on either side of it. Why, it had the same number of windows as its neighbors, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, the same white steps leading up to the heavy black front door. And in the rear, there was the same narrow strip of green with neat box borders running up to the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining 
houses. Apparently, too, the number of chimney pots on the roof was the same. The breadth and angle of the eaves and even the height of the railings. And yet, this house in the square that seemed precisely similar to its 50 ugly neighbors was, as a matter of fact, entirely different, horribly different. Wherein lay this marked invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination because persons who had spent some time in the house knowing nothing of the facts had declared positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable they would rather die than enter them again and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced in them symptoms of a genuine terror. While the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it and been forced to decamp at the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town. When Shorthouse arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her little house on the seafront at the other end of the town, he found her charged to the brim with mystery and excitement. He had only received her telegram that morning, and he had come anticipating boredom. But the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin wrinkled cheek, he caught the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned that there were to be no other visitors and that he had been telegraphed for with a very special object. Something was in the wind and the something would doubtless bear fruit for this elderly spinster aunt with a mania for psychical research had brains as well as willpower and by hook or by crook, she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation was made soon after tea when she sidled close up to him as they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk. I've got the keys, she announced in a delighted yet half awesome voice. Got them Monday. Uh, the keys of the bathing machine, or he asked, innocently, looking from the sea to the town. Nothing brought her so quickly to the point as feigning stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys of the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back. He dropped his teasing tone. Something in her voice and manner thrilled him. She was in earnest. But you can't go alone, he began. That's why I wired for you, she said with decision. He turned to look at her. The lined, enigmatic 
Michael face was alive with excitement. There was the glow of genuine enthusiasm round it, well, like a halo. The eyes shone. He caught another wave of her excitement and a second tremor more marked than the first accompanied it. Thanks, Julia, he said politely. Thanks awfully. Well, I should not dare to go quite alone, she went on, raising her voice. But with you, I should enjoy it immensely. You're afraid of nothing, I know. Well, thanks so much, he said again. Uh, is anything likely to happen? A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been more cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house is said to be empty for good now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, she went on, and the story, oh, it's an unpleasant one, dates a long way back. It has to do with a murder committed by a jealous stableman who had some affair with a servant in the house. One night, he managed to secret himself in the cellar, and when everyone was asleep, he crept upstairs to the servants' quarters, chased the girl down to the next landing, and before anyone could come to the rescue, threw her bodily over the banisters into the hall below. And the stableman was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder. But it all happened a century ago, and I've not been able to get more details of the story. Shorthouse now felt his interest thoroughly aroused. But though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. On one condition, he said at length. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly, but I may as well hear your condition. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens. I mean, uh, that you are sure you won't get too frightened. Oh, Jim, she said scornfully. I'm not young, I know, nor are my nerves. But with you, I should be afraid of nothing in the world. This, of course, settled it. For Shorthouse had no pretensions to being other than a very ordinary young man. And, well, an appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go. Instinctively, by a sort of subconscious preparation, he kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling an accumulative reserve of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotions away and turning the key upon them. A process difficult to describe but wonderfully effective. 
as all men who have lived through several trials of the inner man well understand. And later, it stood him in good stead. But it was not until half past ten when they stood in the hall, well in the glare of friendly lamps and still surrounded by comforting human influences, that he had to make the first call upon this store of collected strength. For once the door was closed and he saw the deserted silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them, well, it, it came to him clearly that the real test that night would be in dealing with two fears instead of one. He would have to carry his aunt's fear as well as his own. And as he glanced down at her sphinx-like countenance and realized that it might assume no pleasant aspect in a rush of real terror, he felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure, that he had confidence in his own will and power to stand against any shock that might come. Slowly, they walked along the empty streets of the town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting deep shadows. There was no breath of wind. And the trees in the formal gardens by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorthouse made no reply, realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to prevent herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed lights, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently, they stopped at the street corner and looked up at the name on the side of the house, full in the moonlight, and with one accord, but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over to the side of it that lay in shadow. The number of the house is 13 whispered a voice at his side, and neither of them made the obvious reference, but passed across the broad sheet of moonlight and began to march up the pavement in silence. It was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slipped quietly but significantly into his own, and he knew then that their adventure had begun in earnest and that his companion was already yielding imperceptibly to the influences against them. She needed support. A few minutes later, they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them into the night, ugly in shape and painted a dingy white Shutterless windows, without blinds, stared down upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the wall and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bulged out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But 
Beyond this generally forlorn appearance of an unoccupied house, well, there was nothing at first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character it had most certainly acquired. Taking a look over his shoulders to make sure they had not been followed, they went boldly up the steps and stood against the huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the first wave of nervousness, oh, it was now upon them, and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he could fit it into the lock at all. For a moment, if truth be told, they both hoped it would not open, for they were prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold of their ghostly adventure. Shorthouse, shuffling with the key and hampered by the steady weight on his arm, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience seemed at that instant concentrated in his own consciousness, were glistening and listening to the grating noise of that key. A stray puff of wind wandering down the empty street woke a momentary rustling in the trees behind them, but otherwise this rattling of the key was the only sound audible. And at last, it turned in the lock and the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With a last glance at the moonlit square, they passed quickly in and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through the empty halls and passages. But instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard. And Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavily upon him that he had to take a step backward to save himself from falling. A man had coughed close beside them. So close that it seemed, oh, they must have actually been by his side in the darkness. Now, with the possibility of practical jokes in his mind, Shorthouse at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of that sound. But it meant nothing, nothing more solid than air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp beside him. There's someone here, she whispered. I heard him. Be quiet, he said sternly. It was nothing but the noise of the front door. Oh, get a light, quick, she added, as her nephew, fumbling with a box of matches, opened it upside down and let them all fall with a rattle onto the stone floor. Oh, the sound, however, was not repeated and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. In another minute, they had a candle burning, using an empty end of a case as a holder, and when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. It was dreary enough in all conscience, for there is nothing more desolate in all the abodes of men than an 
unfurnished house, dimly lit, silent, and forsaken, and yet tenanted by rumor with the memories of evil and violent histories. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open door of a spacious dining room, and in front the hall ran, ever narrowing, into a long, dark passage that led apparently to the top of the kitchen stairs. The broad, uncarpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows, except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the window and fell on a bright patch on the boards. This shaft of light shed a faint radiance above and below it, lending to the objects within its reach a misty outline that was infinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Filtered moonlight always seems to paint faces on the surrounding gloom, and as Shorthouse peered up into the well of darkness and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in the upper part of the old house, he caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square or the cozy bright drawing room they had left an hour before. Then realizing that these thoughts were dangerous. He thrust them away again and summoned all his energy for the concentration on the present. Aunt Julia, he said aloud, severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search. The echoes of his voice died away slowly all over the building. And in the intense silence that followed, he turned to look at her. In the candlelight, he saw that her face was already ghastly pale. But she dropped his arm for a moment and said in a whisper, stepping close in front of him, I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That is the first thing. She spoke with evident effort and he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself because it's not too late. I think so, she whispered, her eyes shifting nervously toward the shadows behind. Quite sure. Only one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone for an instant. Well, as long as you understand that any sound or appearance must be investigated at once. For to hesitate means to admit fear. That is fatal. <sighs> Agreed, she said, a little shakily, after a moment's hesitation. I'll, <laughs> I'll try. Arm in arm, Shorthouse, holding the dripping candle and the stick, while his aunt carried the cloak over her shoulders, figures of utter comedy to all but themselves, they began a systematic search, stealthily walking on tiptoe and shading the candle 
lest it should betray their presence through those shutterless windows. They went first into the big dining room. There was not a stick of furniture to be seen, bare walls, ugly mantelpieces, and empty grates stared at them. Everything, they felt, resented their intrusion, watching them, as it were, with veiled eyes, whispers followed them, shadows flitted noiselessly to right and left. Something seemed ever at their back, watching, waiting for an opportunity to do them injury. There was the inevitable sense that operations which went on when the room was empty had been temporarily suspended till they were well out of the way again. The whole dark interior of the old building seemed to become a malignant presence that rose up warning them to desist and mind their own business. Every moment the strain on the nerves increased. Out of the gloomy dining room they passed, through large folding doors into a sort of library or smoking room, wrapped equally in silence, darkness, and dust. And from this, they regained the hall, near the top of the back stairs. Here, a pitch black tunnel opened before them into the lower regions and it must be confessed, they hesitated, but only for a minute. With the worst of the night still to come, it was essential to turn from nothing. Aunt Julia stumbled at the top step of the dark descent, ill lit by the flickering candle, and even Shorthouse felt at least half the decision go out of his legs. Oh. Come on, he said, peremptorily. His voice ran on and lost itself in the dark, empty spaces below. Ah, oh, yes, I'm coming, she faltered, catching his arm with unnecessary violence. They went a little unsteadily down the stone steps. A cold, damp air meeting them in the face close and maladorous. The kitchen into which the stairs led along a narrow passage was large with a lofty ceiling. Now several doors opened out of it. Some cupboards with empty jars still standing on the shelves and others into horrible little ghostly back offices. Each colder and less inviting than the last. Little black beetles scurried over the floor. And once, when they knocked against a deal table standing in a corner, something about the size of, of a cat jumped down with a rush and fled, scampering across the stone floor into the darkness. Everywhere, there was a sense of recent occupation 
but an impression of sadness and gloom. Leaving the main kitchen, they next went towards the scullery. The door was standing ajar, and as they pushed it open to its full extent, Aunt Julia uttered a piercing scream, which she instantly tried to stifle by placing her hand over her mouth. For a second, Shorthouse stood stock still, catching his breath, he felt as if his spine had suddenly become hollow and someone had filled it with particles of ice. Facing them, directly in their way, between the doorposts, stood the figure of a woman. She had disheveled hair and wildly staring eyes, and her face was terrified and white as death. She stood there, motionless, for the space of a single second. And then the candle flickered and she was gone, gone utterly. And the door framed nothing but empty darkness. And that is where we'll stop for the end of this episode. Don't forget, there's so many good masterpieces of wonderful authors out there for you. Give them a try. Good night.